Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. As um, Chuck stated, we are beginning then a new series on the, the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. And There are four gospel accounts, and so it has been well um, stated that, again, tradition holds that there are reasons why each of the um, writers wrote. So it's put out that Matthew wrote regarding the promised Messiah, Mark about the suffering servant, Luke about the Son of Man, and John, the Son of God. And we have gone through each of the gospels um, in the past, um, and so when we went through the book of Matthew, we indeed saw that Jewish, that Matthew was a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah. His full intent was to prove the authenticity of the claim of Christ, of Jesus, as the Messiah. And so he showed it, he proved it through his genealogy, he showed it through the proof of his signs and wonders, uh, miracles, through his teachings, through his death, his burial, his resurrection. When we looked at Mark, I shared that I believe that Mark, because each one of them, again, I think had a purpose, not necessarily as neat and as clean as we like to put it like this, okay? I think Mark, honestly, was the gospel according to Peter, and that Mark was the scribe. Um, And you can go back and listen to those messages, but Paul calls for Mark while he's in Rome, um, and, and he didn't want anything to do with Mark, but he calls for Mark and says, Ask, send Mark because he's profitable for me. And it was at that time when Paul and Peter were in Rome together, Peter refers to Mark as being his spiritual son. So I, I think that there was a part where Paul and Peter got together and Paul said to Peter, you need to write down the gospel. And so I think Mark was actually the, the gospel of Peter and that Mark was just a scribe. But you can take it for whatever you want. When we looked at John, we saw again that John wrote later, and John doesn't write a typical gospel account of the life of Jesus. That John actually is writing to prove, and he says so at the very end, these things, that he wrote these things in order to show that Jesus is the, the Son of God. And he said there was more things that could be written, but, but this was enough to be able to prove that. And that as we just went through this um, two years ago, three years ago, two and a half, three years ago, um, we talked about that, that John was writing also to a group of Gnostics, that Gnosticism had come into the church. And so he was addressing the the heresy of Gnosticism, Um, and I'm not going to go into all that. That was a a point of why he was writing as well. And so he's writing to the Jews, he's writing to the Gnostics, of why he begins off with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. The same was in the beginning with God, right? And so he goes through all these things that are meant to, to address the issue that well, just one thing quickly. The Gnostics believed that, that Jesus wasn't God, but that God came upon this individual Jesus at baptism and left before he died. And so John's whole thing is, no, actually, 
God became incarnate. God, God became incarnate from the very beginning. He was God, and that's why he could be the Lamb of God, that the Son of God came to the earth in order to become the Lamb of God, in order for him to pay the penalty of our sins. So as we come into the book of Luke, it's kind of cool, and the Son of Man is used overwhelmingly throughout the book of Luke, but I think that Luke wrote for another reason, and we're going to see that right off the bat, because we're going to now look at the book of Luke, and we're going to look at the author, the recipient, and then ultimately the purpose of his writing. But before we get into it, we need to talk about who really wrote it, because as Chuck read this, it doesn't start off like Paul starts off his letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the faithful in Christ Jesus who are at whatever, right? It doesn't start that way. Rather, we don't read at all who the writer was. So we want to look, first of all, at the, um, the, that which is indicated, his identity indicated by historical testimony. And so first we have Marcion of Sinope um, in uh, 150. So that's the earliest writings that we have. Um, and so Marcion of Sinope, whoever he is, right, he declared that he believed that it was written by, this account was written by the traveling companion of Paul, who happened to be Luke. That was then um, declared as well by Justin Martyr in 156 AD. Okay, and so this is 100 years or so, less than 100 years after the writing of it, okay? And so, so basically, you know, at about 100 years afterwards, there is a, a, an idea, an understanding of who wrote this. And then Eusebius, who was a Jewish historian who wrote around 200 AD, confirmed those things. Now, we can go to, there's many other writings, but they're all afterwards. And so from my perspective, at this moment, those writers who wrote afterwards are looking at who? Marcion, Justin, and Eusebius, and others who wrote, and, and they're, they're, it becomes church tradition at that moment. So we could continue to look at others, but in my mind it doesn't matter. So based upon church tradition from the earliest writings, this account is attributed to Luke. Does it make sense? Now, the reality is that's eisegesis. That's eisegetic. We're, we're reading into that from history. We've taken history, and we're going to bring that in. But fortunately, God's word has a lot of details in it. Remember, I talk about this all the time. Be care always pay attention to what? Details, okay? Because we now have the inferences that come from biblical testimony. What do we know from this writer's own testimony right off the bat in just these four verses? He was not one of the apostles nor was he one of the first witnesses of what Jesus did. Rather, he's a first-generation believer. Isn't this kind of cool? Because he says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to who? Who's it say? Us. It's in the Bible, y'all. It's not up there. Okay, they, they delivered him to, to us, okay, which means he wasn't one of them. He was actually a recipient of these testimonies that were given of Jesus Christ, okay? So he wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't one of the, the 72, and there are some who actually hold that he's one of the 70, 72, whatever number that is, that were sent out by Jesus. Well, he can't be because he'd know Jesus in the, by himself, right? And he basically says, I never met the man. Everything I believe is based upon what? What I've been told. Isn't this kind of cool? He's not that. But we also can know um, that he appears to be the same guy as in the book of Acts. Well, how do we know that? Because he continues on, and he's writing 
verse, in verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all these things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, O most excellent Theophilus. So he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay? And if you go over to Acts chapter 1, the beginning of the Acts of the Apostle. Acts chapter 1, we read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, that means it kind of ties together, doesn't it? So that whoever the author of Acts is at least pretending to be, if he's not, the same author as the guy who wrote this book that we're reading of Luke, right? And so both of these are addressed to Theophilus, and the guy who wrote Acts seems also to be then the guy who wrote the book of Luke, okay? Well, that's good, so now let's go keep going with our inferences. The author also then appears to have come, become a traveling companion of Paul after Troas. So here in the book of Acts, I'm going to continue on to chapter 16, because now we have the same individual who's writing. And in Acts 16, and we covered this um, last year as we went through the book of Acts. And in Acts 16, I'm going to begin reading um, in verse 6, because that's the paragraph break for me. And it says, now when they, again, details are important. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia in the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, Asia, after they had come to Mysia and tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. There's a, a, a pronoun change. The writer now becomes part of the journey. Before Acts 16, verse 8, or whatever that is, uh, 10, he's telling about what happened, what they did what happened before him. But now in Troas, he's going to join Paul's entourage. And from this point on, he's giving a firsthand account of everything that he had seen. So what do we have? We got a guy who's writing, who wasn't one of the original apostles, who wasn't one of the original witnesses, who became a follower of, of Jesus, probably through the ministry of Paul, and so impactful that he chose to what? Join them in that ministry and follow along with them, right? What's the next thing we have? Well, the next thing we have is the author appears to be familiar with medical knowledge and terminology. In fact, very familiar with medical terminology. So let's go to Luke chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 5. In chapter 5, verse 12, and you can see the summary of that on the screen. But again, we like to read God's word. So... My Bible does have a Luke chapter 5. Ah. I might borrow yours, King James. I might borrow yours. There we go. Luke 5. Oh, I still am not there. All right. Yeah, isn't that nuts? It's like, ah! Verse 12. In it, yeah, and it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, 
you can make me clean. The other gospel accounts, when they talk about this, says that a leper came up. It just defines the guy. It labels the guy. He was a leper. The writer, the author of this account, actually does a diagnosis. He, he writes a, a diagnostic statement that the individual, he wasn't going to label necessarily as a leper. He's just full of skin disease. Because the, the term back then just really meant a skin disease. So this guy had a, a skin disease. But he wasn't literally going to label him as a what? As a leper. Okay? Small, small detail, but interesting detail. Okay? In Luke 7, verse 1 to 10, let's go there. This is about the centurion's servant. It says, Now when he concluded, Jesus concluded all the sayings and hearing the people, he entered in Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that one, that one for whom he should do this was deserving, in, for he, did, he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter into my, under my roof. Therefore, I didn't think even worthy myself to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turned around, and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that passage later when we talk about friends. Um, but he was to the point of death. The term kakos echon, okay, Kakos is from kakos, meaning it's bad, it's ugly, um, it's not good. Okay, kalos is good. Okay, um, there's like pornea, which means evil and that kind of stuff. Kakos is just bad. Okay, from that perspective. But kakos echon then is having badness, and so it is actually the the so and that's the phrase that he uses. So the point unto death, he's what he's saying is is kakos echon. Okay, which means it's just it's just it's bad. But what is interesting is that that phrase is a medical phrase that's even brought into today. So you have kakekia, is a complex syndrome associated with an underlying illness cause, causing ongoing, ongoing muscle loss. The diagnosis of kakekia can be difficult due to the lack of well-established diagnostic criteria. Okay? So you say, what does all that mean? That means this guy was what? Just as it's stating. This guy's wasting away, and they haven't got a clue what's going on. The Roman centurion says that my servant's wasting away. And we don't know how he's wasting away. But the writer of this one brings us a medical term. He's kakakia. He kakas echon. He's wasting away to nothing. Does that make sense? The others don't share that little detail. It's just a small little medical detail. In Luke 22, 41 to 46, this is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, you probably have heard this before, but it's again, it's an important part, important detail. The others talk about Jesus praying in the Garden and talk about potentially the disciples falling asleep. But again, the author of this gospel, 
as this gives us a little detail as well. So beginning in verse 41. And he, that is Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, and being in agony, he's full of angst, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then you can continue reading how he continues to pray, right? So, in there you've got the Greek, okay, and I know it may mean nothing to you, okay? But, but I put the, the words colorized so that you can see them, how they come over um, into the English. This is the word for sweat, okay? And so, but the sweat of him, it became drops, thrombosis, thrombos, clots, if you would, really, literally, of blood, okay? And so his sweat became clots of blood. Now, that's really interesting because, again, the others don't share that. But as a doctor, it meant a big deal to him because he probably was suffering from hematidrosis, a rare condition in which human, a human sweats blood. Thrombosis is the formation of a blood clot within a, a blood vessel. And so, so the, the, the author is using medical terms to describe what Jesus is going through. Does, does that make sense? And when we get to the crucifixion, we can talk about that a little bit as well. Okay? But so I saved the best for last, though, um, for you all who are in the medical profession. So you may want to close your ears on this one. Okay? We go to Luke chapter 8. It says, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent her whole livelihood in physicians and could not be healed by any. That sounds okay. I mean, that's pretty generic. In, in a, now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood in physicians and could not be healed by any. Because that's exactly what happened. From this, the author's perspective, this woman, she had a, a condition. She c- couldn't get it figured out. And so she'd been going to doctors, and she spent everything she had. And, but the doctors tried the best they could. They, but they couldn't figure it out. So at the last resort, she's going to go to Jesus. But what does Mark say? Mark says, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. <laughs> and literally, the word for Greek is, she suffered. <laughs> she suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. So this is kind of a, an argument from the reverse side. Um, but I thought it was kind of humorous as I'm, as I'm, I'm analyzing this thing. If you were a doctor and you felt a little inclined toward physicians, you would say what? Don't be so hard on them. They tried. I mean, you're, you're, putting, you're judging them at this moment, okay? So you can take whichever side of that you want to. I figure those who are in the medical realm, you're taking Luke's side. Some of you others, you might be taking Mark's side, okay? And so, um, but anyways, Colossians chapter 4 says that Luke is a what? A beloved physician that Luke ultimately was a physician. So it makes sense, okay? Now, can I state right here emphatically it's Luke who wrote it? No, I can't. But I got a pretty good 98.5%, and I made that statistic up on on, on the spot, probability that I think it really was Luke, okay? Everything leans toward Luke. Make sense? The the internal evidence leans toward Luke, and then the early church within 100 years already was assuming that it was Luke. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So that's his identity, 
Okay, what about his ethnicity? So assuming that it's Luke, we go to Colossians chapter 7, verse 7 to 14. It says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may, that he may know your circumstances and comforts your heart. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. So stop for a moment. We have Tychicus. We don't know who he is at this moment, but then we have Onesimus. But we know Onesimus was from Colossae, right? Because he's what? He's one of you, okay? This, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. In Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, which means that Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice are what? Jews. They're of the circumcision. And what does he say about them? They're the only ones of them, right? They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, so Epaphras is what? From Colossae as well, from that area. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfectly complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now that's the verse that we just looked at about him being a physician. But what does it indicate to us? He probably isn't what? Jewish. Why? Because Paul already delineated all those who were of the circumcision, and he didn't include Luke. There are, again, people who are going to tell you that Luke was Jewish. In fact, I already shared that there were some who believed that he was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out, but it does not make sense with the rest of biblical testimony. Does it make sense? So based upon this passage, I would say that Luke indeed was a Gentile. Okay? So this is kind of cool then, okay? Because you got Matthew, a Jewish man, writing to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah, proving the claims. If this is true, if this is who this is, and this is what he is, he's one of us. And when we get to the purpose, it's exciting. Because why is he writing to you? Because he wants you to know, assuredly, confidently, Put your money in the bank. Everything that was said about him is dead on right. Strobel's first, Lee. This is like Lee Strobel putting out videos today. I did a thorough search, and I want you to know this stuff is right. It's kind of cool. All right, before we get to the purpose, though, we got to talk now. Um, oh, we're his fidelity, this is important. I don't want to pass this by. Because again, what else would he know about him? First of all, he is faithful to the work of the Lord, okay? 2 Timothy 4, verse 9 to 11. Be diligent to come to me for Demas. Remember, Demas had been with Paul just in that last one, right? We got Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas who were with me. But now all of a sudden we get to Paul's writing to, to Timothy at the end of his ministry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Remember that for later on, okay? Having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Christians for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me in the ministry. That's the part I talked about earlier where I think Paul's saying, Bring Mark because I want him to do something for me. In Philemon, 
verses 23 and 24, there's only one chapter, so it's Philemon chapter 1, but it's really Philemon, verse 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow servant, okay, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, okay? So what do we know about Luke? Luke was faithful to the work of Yahweh, to the work of the Lord. In fact, he was willing to leave whatever he had going on in Troas. So let's think about this for a moment. If he's a physician, and Paul meets him in Troas, what do you think he's doing in Troas? Practicing medicine. You know why they call it practicing, right? Anyways, oh, just leave that there. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, but he's probably got to practice. He's probably working in Troas. And so I want, don't, don't let it go by you. He picks everything up, and he leaves it all for the work of the Lord. Don't put your hands up. You can think about this in your heart. This is just a little side. Are you willing to leave it all? Are you willing to quit your job to leave it all in order to go to another country to people you don't know and to tell them about Jesus? It's really it. Do you know there are a whole lot less pastors and missionaries in the world today? Let me caveat that. There's a lot coming out of other countries. There's hardly any coming from the United States. Because Christians are enjoying the world. They're like the, the first one. Demas has forsaken me. Because he's what? He's loved the world. We love the world too much to leave it all. To tell people about Jesus. Can I be more, can I be more direct and more rude? Because this is not how you think. None of you will think this way. But this is really summarizing. So in my, in my heart, in my brain, God's brought this to me. I'd rather see people go to hell than for me to lose a little bit of a piece of this world. That's kind of rough. If that applies to you, then please, take, by all means, take both of my shoes and wear them so I don't have to wear them anymore. <laughs> but that's how it plays out. Do I really care about my neighbor? Do I really care about those people around the world? What am I willing to do for them to hear the gospel? What am I willing to sacrifice? I don't know what Luke but I got to believe that he probably left everything just to follow an itinerant preacher to tell people about a Messiah that wasn't even of his own people. He was then, as well as we see in the beginning of this uh, account of Luke, um, faithful to the word of God. Again, how does he start this off? Just a dynamic first four verses as well. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. These are things that have been fully borne out and proven. And there have been many who have sought to do this. 
They've, they've taken in hand to set in, in order a narrative, a writing, a declaration of what has gone on. So I don't need to do anything because there's already tons of them out there. It's not what he says. But as, as others have done this, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Stop for a moment. What do we already know about this guy? He wasn't there from what? From the very beginning. So what did he do? He did a what? He took a careful history. He researched the account. It's amazing as we go through this, because he's going to use the genealogy of Mary. I believe that Luke took the opportunity as he was traveling with Paul to learn and to glean everything he could from every individual that he met. And as a doctor, as a physician, he wrote it all down in very orderly fashion, a diagnosis, if you would, to make sure that he would diagnose the situation appropriately. So he brings down all the details. So he says, it seemed to go to me that having perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you in orderly account. Because all those other accounts, though they're good, they're all from their perspectives. They had a reason. It's okay. He's not downplaying them. What was Matthew's purpose? To prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. What was John's purpose? To prove to the Gnostics. Do you understand? I think John probably came after Luke. So there were probably potentially other accounts that were written, which aren't deemed what? Scripture. Does it make sense? And Luke says, so having seen all these things floating about, I thought it was good for someone to do what? Write an orderly account. To bring something chronologically, this is what Jesus did. This is where he was. And so his fidelity to the word of the Lord, that you may know what? The certainty of those things which, were, which you were instructed. That you may know the certainty that leads us into now, um, oh, well, his purpose when we get there. No, we've got to go to the recipient real quick. So who is he writing to? Well, we know it's this guy named, what, Theophilus, okay? The first question you need to ask is, is this a, a specific individual or is this a generalized name, title, okay? Um, we don't know. We're not necessarily told. Um, there is a debate between the two. But what's interesting to me is that he refers to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. It is a term that literally is only used by Luke in the book of Acts toward Felix and Festus. So here's Bob's take on it. I think it's a specific literal individual that he's writing to, but his name probably isn't Theophilus. He's probably a Roman leader who has proven himself to be a friend of God. Does that make sense? And we're going to talk about his name in a moment. And that, that just as we have missionaries 
who refer to certain individuals by other names in order to protect them, that Luke probably is referring to Theophilus, friend of God, in order that he's not naming this guy um, for the Roman authorities to go after. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. But that, I'm just telling you that's the take I'm, uh, that I got on. I think he's a literal individual that, that Luke is writing to, but he has chosen to give him a specific name. Okay. Now, again, I believe that Luke's writing was also then under the authority of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where all scripture is what? God breathed. So therefore, in my mind, this name Theophilus isn't then just from, from Paul's, or Paul's, Luke's thought process, probably is something that God placed on him to do. So that we go to his name. His name's Theophilus. Theos means God. Theos means friend, okay? And so, in Luke 7, verse 6, um, to what does phylos mean? This is important. We're going to go through a couple of verses real fast. Okay, phylos real fast. Uh, Luke 7, verse 6, Then Jesus went with them, and he was not already far from the house. The centurion sent friends to him. Remember, we just read about that passage, okay? So he sent Jews first to ask him to come, but then when um, Jesus is coming, and he knows Jesus is coming, he sends friends to Jesus to, 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 to do his bidding for him. So what do I know about a friend? A friend is willing to do what? He's willing to go serve his, his friend, okay? Because these guys, they weren't servants. He could have used the word servants, but they weren't his servants. These were just his what? Friends. And his friends were willing to do something for him, okay? So they went out, okay? Luke 11, 5 to 8, though, we have this parable of, of the, um, that Jesus gave about a friend coming to a friend uh, about needing bread to feed a friend. Does that confuse you? Okay? And so he says, and, and Jesus said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has come on me for this journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within saying, dad, don't trouble me. The door is shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give it to you. You're waking up my whole household. Go away. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So a philo, okay, someone who is a friend, may do whatever for somebody else, but there's a what? There's a limit. <laughs> he didn't get up because he was just his friend. He got up because the guy wouldn't stop knocking at the door. I'm not leaving until you open up and give me that bread, buddy. I know you got it. Oh, good grief. I can't get rid of this guy. So, yeah, that's what I said. That's exactly right. You might as well get up right away because otherwise you're going to be not sleeping for five hours. So, anyways, so a friend is willing to do something for somebody else, but there are potentially what? Limits to it. John 15, 12 to 17. Jesus says, now get the terminology here because we're going to get into some terminology. This is my commandment that you what? That you agapao one another, that you love one another. I'll come back to that in a moment. That you love one another as I have agapao to you, that I have loved you. Greater agapao, love, has no one than this, than, a, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Okay, so the fulfillment of agapao is laying down your life for your friends. We'll come back to that. James 2, 23, which is kind of fun. Theophilus doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture 
other than in Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1. However, there are two places where the concept actually phylos theos, and then the phylos, the theos and the phylos come together. And, and it's both in James, which we just completed a few months ago. Okay? And James, that's you. That's right. That's right. You're right. James. James 2, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called, not Theophilus, but Philos Theu, the friend of God. Isn't that kind of cool? So what do we know about a friend of God now? A friend will do something for others, but there may be a limit. But a friend of God, what's he going to do? He's going to believe God. A friend believes others. And a friend of God believes God and then acts upon that belief. Rather, in James 4, 4, it says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself a what? Enemy of God. So you're not a Theophilus, you're a Cosmosphilus. You're a world lover rather than a God lover. And so if you love the world, remember it goes back to that question, okay? If you love the world more than you love God, God calls you an adulterer or an adulteress. Jesus said, if you love your mother or your father more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. Isn't that hard? That's pretty hard, okay? In John 21, 15 to 17, one of my favorite portions of Scripture. i got lots of favorite portions of Scripture. But Jesus is talking to Peter, okay? And this is after Peter has denied him three times. They're up in Galilee. Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other guys went with him. They're out on the lake, and they're fishing. And they see this guy on the, on the seashore. And the guy says, hey, have you got any fish tonight? And they go, no, we haven't got anything. He says, well, cast your net on the other side. And they cast their net on the other side. And then the nets were full of fishes. Then their nets were full of, right, right? And they got so many, they're bringing it up. And Peter says, it's the Lord, right? Or maybe John says it, whatever. But Peter goes flying out of the boat, and he goes to the shore, right? And so there they are. They're around the fire. They're cooking the fish that Jesus already had because he was already cooking. They didn't, he didn't need to go fishing. He already had them. And so they're sitting there. And Jesus and Simon Peter go off for a walk. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yea, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. The second time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, feed my lambs. And the third time, Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? No, it's the third time, and Peter's kind of anguished about it. Then he asked him again, he says, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my sheep. Now, that's what we read in the English. That's not what it says in the Greek. Let me show you what it says in the Greek, because this is kind of fun. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agapao me? Lord, I phileo you. Do you know what the change? Simon Peter, do you love me selflessly? Do you love me committedly? The greatest commandment that we have been given is to love agapao, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind. This is the first greatest commitment. The second is like unto it, that you should agapao your neighbor as yourself. There are three primary forms of love. I know there's four. You'd even go five, okay? But biblically speaking, in relationships with one another, there are three primary forms of love. There is eros, 
where we get our word erotic from. It's a selfish love. I love you for what you do for me. I love pepperoni pizza. As long as the pepperoni doesn't give me heartburn. The minute it starts giving me heartburn, I don't love pepperoni pizza anymore. There was a period of time when I couldn't love pizza anymore. And then I found out that, no, I could eat cooked cheese. I'm okay with that. So now I love pizza again. I don't love donuts because I had an overdose on a donut once and, and had a really bad asthmatic reaction. So for those on the video, I have a milk allergy. And so, but then I found out it was only the A1 casein protein. And so now Marsha can make me donuts with A2 milk, right? And I can eat my donuts again and I can be fickle in my love for donuts. I only love them if they're good. For me. They like it. Marsha makes them. That's right. That's erotic love. That's not how we necessarily use it all the time, but you can see how that is. It's selfish love, okay? Then you have phileo. It's brotherly, friendship, love. Back on eros, if you're hungry, hope you find some. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm praying for you. I'm just hoping you find some. I'm picking on Asa right now. You're just in the right spot. But phileo, phileo now. Ace is my buddy. He's my friend. He's my pal. We are tight. We're all, well, sort of like this. Because if he's hungry, I want to help feed him as long as what? I got enough food for me. I'll give you the shirt off my back as long as I got more in the closet. But if I only got enough porridge for me or you, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you right now. I'm praying that God of all comforts and God of, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that he was going to bring you porridge, brother. I know I'm eating a steak, but you can, I'm praying for porridge for you. And so that's phileo. But then we get to agapao love, which is selfless, committed love, dedicated love. That's the love that God has for us, where the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, that, that he gave his only begotten Son to pay the penalty of my sins. That while I was at enmity, with him, while I hated him and I spit on him, he was committed and dedicated to me, and he loved me. That's the love that we're called to get to. Now, on the earth, be honest, we're not going to get there. I'd love to say that I agapao my wife, but agapao, no greater agapao is any man than this, and he'll lay down his what? Life for his what? Friend, phileo, friend, okay? Actions speak louder than what? Words. When life happens, that's when I prove whether I'm agapaoing my wife or not. Does it make sense? And some are tested in that, whether they love that. But the question would be in your heart whether it's still just a phileo plus or whether it's really an agapao minus. Are you really doing it because still you look good and this is just your duty to do? Or are you doing it because she means more than you do? Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what was the mind? That you do all things without strife and vainglory. In a lowliness of mind, you consider others as more, more valuable than yourself. You want agapao love? That's what it is. You consider others more important than you. You consider their needs more important than you. Are you putting up your hand, Christina? Yeah. Is the agapao love reserved for God? No, because the greatest commandment is the agapao God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second like unto it, agapao your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, the end of it, he tells us then we're supposed to agapao our enemies. 
and to pray for those who despitefully use it. I love that marital counseling. You know, can you love her like, like she's your, like your soulmate? <laughs> no, not at all. Can you love her at least like a friend or something? No. Can you love, I mean, is she like an enemy to you? Yeah. Well, Jesus, love your enemies and pray, you pray for those. Spite. You ain't got it out, baby. You, as your husband, are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And guess what? He loved me when I was spitting in his face. No out. Sorry, guys. No out. So if you want another counseling, please don't come to me. Because I promise you, if you come to me for counseling, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to type my prescription sheet out, and I'm going to write on it, go home, go in the bathroom, turn on the light, look in the mirror, point your finger at that guy and say, it's your fault. I'm going to talk to the woman too. But anyways, but for the guys, that's what you're going to hear. I haven't got an out. I'm called upon to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Well, he says then, he says, do you agapao me? He says, Lord, I follow you. And he says, Feed my sheep. I'm not done with you. I got a purpose for you. This doesn't shock me. I know it. Second time he asked him, Peter, do you agapao me? He said, Lord, I follow you. He said, feed my lambs. The third time, Jesus now says to him, Peter, do you phileo me? Lord, you know all things. You know I only phileo you. I've proven it. How can I say I agapow you when I denied you three times? When I got a little maiden, a little servant girl who's making me flee like, a, like, like she was an attack a, a dog. Lord, I only follow you. Peter, feed my sheep. Do you remember when he said to him in Luke 22? He said, Peter, I got something to say to you. He said, say on. He says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. I gave him permission. And when you are converted, encourage your brethren. When you get back up off your face, you're the guy. Isn't that kind of cool? Does God know where you're at in your love relationship with him? Will he ever leave you or forsake you? Will he love you through it all? Yeah, isn't that kind of cool? So this is what a friend is. Okay? A friend is someone who's going to stick by his buddy, but he might what? But he might fail him every once in a while. Does it make sense? So, blankfulness. If God would name you, what would he name you? Would you be Theophilus? Would you be Xboxphilus? Would you be Chocophilus? Would you be Pornphilus? Would you be Selfphilus? Who are you the lover of? Who are you the friend of? Are you a friend of God? I know there's songs, I am a friend of God. That's good. You can claim all you want you're a friend of God, but it only matters if what? God says you're a friend of God. Abraham's testimony was that he was a friend of God. So in the end, the purpose, why did he write? He wrote an orderly account of the life of Christ. He wanted them to have something that they could read as Gentiles. Isn't this kind of fun? A Gentile writing to Gentiles. So that you, you, years later, Jesus said to, to Thomas, he says, you believe me because what? Because you see me. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and still believe. Let's be honest. So now I'm not reading a firsthand account. I'm reading a research paper. I'm reading an investigative journal report of what an individual who lived within 30 to 40 years after the life of Jesus discovered about him and why he was giving his entire life changed his whole purpose why he's doing it this one's exciting he's got he's got no skin in the game he's not a jew looking for a jewish messiah to, to take him away from rome he's a gentile he has no reason to believe but he's committed it all and he wants you bob corbin brian Wu. he wants you each of you to have an orderly account why to give you assurance regarding the apostolic testimony of which you have been instructed in. I don't have time to go through all this, but the term for certainty and assurance is, it, literally it means not failing. And it's used of when, when Peter was in prison and they went to get him and he's not there anymore and they come back and they say, all we can do is tell you that we went there and we found the door shut securely. It was locked. There was no problems with it at all. There was no failing in the door but the guy's not there. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, when they say peace and safety, security, okay? I want you to have this kind of security. There's no concern, no worried. Well, the sad thing for them is that sudden destruction was coming upon them, okay? But that's the security that he wants us to have. Acts 21, 34, it says, then, and some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. This is the, the centurion when Paul was being grabbed by all the Jews, right? And everybody's saying everything. And he says, so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken to the parrots. He couldn't be certain of what was true. Remember, because we, we studied that. Everybody was saying different things, right? So he couldn't be certain. Well, Luke wants you to know what? You can be. You can be certain of the things that was written from the, the apostolic authorities of what they, what they saw. And the things then which you were instructed in, literally, um, kata echo, echo is where we get our word echo, okay? And so the repeating of it. And so according to the repeating of it, if you would, okay, you've been instructed in these things, you heard these things, okay? So this man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In other words, he had heard these things according to what he had heard. He was now what? Teaching. So here's the deal. As you read God's word, Hopefully, read God's word. It's not just preaching. But I'm going to say it as you, as you hear God's word preached. Okay? Then you go out and do what? You kind of echo it. You kind of echo it. You also then proclaim, you instruct others in the truth of God's word. Do you understand? That's your job. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of the Lord. But how will they hear if what? If someone's not sent. Do you realize that each one of us is what? Is sent? Jesus said, so send I you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. You're sent to give out the message so that people will know the truth, that they can have the same certainty that you have. But they're out there floundering because they don't know the truth. And they've been told that this book is what? Unreliable. It's a myth at best. 
Acts 21, 21, again, in the same thing where, um, where Paul is told to do things because there are people who have been informed, they've been instructed, they've been taught, they've heard, and they're repeating these things that they've heard. Galatians 6, in the end, let him who is taught, uh, katako, the word share in all good things with him who katakos them. Okay? The idea, again, is that's your job, not just what looking to me, but it's I may put it into you, I may encourage you, David, Steve, Paul, uh, uh, Chuck, may, I'm equating you with Paul, Chuck, that's great, that, that we may put it into you, but it's God who does it, only for you to do what? Put it into others. Don't let it stop in this room. So in the end, what would your name be if God filled in the blank? What Phyllis would you be? Are you assured of the testimony of Scripture? How faithful are you to the work of God and to the word of God? And finally then, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your great agapao love. It's not even phylos. It's not, not even phila. You're, you're not just our friend. You're a lover. You are committed to us. Forgive us, Lord, for failing in that. But Lord, we desire to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you, Father, for, for men that you used to record your truth, that we might have a certainty of the things which have been declared. Lord, we know that in this world there are many naysayers and many who want to, to try to get us distracted. Satan himself would love to, to cause us to question your word as he did with Eve in the garden but we know that your word is true. It is God-breathed, and you have given it to us that we might be complete to every good work. Lord, help us to be faithful, to spend time in your word every day. Lord, give us a desire to even wake up before we, we do anything else to, to feast on your word. Lord, get rid of our, our excuses. We're not wanting to be in your word. Get rid of our excuses, our desires for the world more than we desire you. Cause us to see it for what it really is. Help us to be fully committed to you for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.